This is the MDRT Podcast. U.S. advisors know that the DOL fiduciary rule, set to be applied in April 2017 with full compliance in January 2018, will have a large impact on their business. Moderator, John Nichols, Chicago, Illinois. Julie McNeely, Spencer, Wisconsin. And representing two countries where extensive regulations are already in place. Simon Gibson from Newmarket in the UK. And Susan Patterson, Brisbane, Australia. Recently met for an extended discussion about the reasons behind the US regulations and how they will impact the advisor and clients. This is part one in a three-part series. The Department of Labor has recently decided that they wanted to regulate the way that all advisors work with qualified plans. So that's all retirement accounts. And they specifically wanted to adjust the definition of fiduciary that we all have to live under. And that definition changes the way, in some cases, the way we work with our clients. The thought behind the Department of Labor's plan started about six years ago, and it was actually pulled back. And just recently, they came back out with a new rule, and that new rule was pretty daunting when we first got the copy. It was over a 1,000 pages of regulation and uh, obviously very different than what we currently operate under. They did go through a comment period where they took comments from individual advisors, they took comments from companies, and then they came out with the revised rule just uh, a few weeks ago. That revised rule will will certainly change, like I said, the, the way we interact with our clients and it will technically go into effect in 2017. So uh, essentially, it's, it's going to require us to either act in a fee-based capacity or we will have to do one of a multitude of exceptions that will allow us to continue to get paid a commission on any products that we're utilizing. When you use the terminology fiduciary, what does that mean? Well, fiduciary is really meant to make sure that you're always putting the best interest of your clients first. Certainly, we explain to them that we always do that, no matter if we get paid with a fee base or commission base. But they have a very specific definition of fiduciary in the rule. The original rule, when it first came out, was a much more strict definition. It's been loosened ever so slightly now with the revised rule. But it is very specifically requiring you to act in the best interest of your client above all other circumstances, including your own compensation, your company's objectives, things like that. And does this cover all advisors? Tell me more about that. It does cover all advisors if you operate in the qualified market. So if you're doing retirement plans of any kind, whether that's group retirement plans, 401ks, SEPs, SIMPLES, or if you're doing individual retirement planning, such as IRAs, Roth IRAs. It even goes all the way down to HSAs, health savings accounts. So you're certainly impacted pretty much if you're in any kind of qualified space, whether you're fixed or an insurance licensed only or securities licensed as well. I thought that the SEC was in charge of rulemaking or regulation making. And so maybe help me understand that a little bit. I mean, Department of Labor seems to be encroaching, or at least they have domain over this qualified space, as you say. What, what about the SEC? The SEC does regulate all advisors in the investment or security space. So one would think that if there was going to be a change or a rule that came out regarding fiduciary, that it would come out from the SEC, not the Department of Labor. The Department of Labor, it really has jurisdiction over any ERISA plans, which are 
typically 401ks. But they felt strongly that because there's so much money in this retirement space that they wanted to continue to have, I think, some oversight or jurisdiction over that money as it passed from 401ks into individual IRA accounts. As individual Americans or consumers retire, money transfers from their 401k into their IRA accounts. And so some people feel that's a power grab or a stretch for them to grab those accounts. Uh, Others feel it's justified because they currently have jurisdiction over it when it's in the 401k account. The SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, is looking at coming out with a rule. Who knows when that will be? They've been talking about it for several years. And my guess, I hope would be, I should say, that if, it, if they do come out with a rule, that somehow they're going to marry these together a little bit so that we aren't really operating under two different worlds. That's, I think, one of the biggest fears I have, is that all of a sudden now we have two regulatory agencies telling us how to do our business, and they aren't at all sort of working together. And that, to me, could be very detrimental to not only advisors, but to consumers. Great. Thank you, Julie. Simon, turning to you with the UK, what regulation has occurred within the UK maybe in the last five or ten years? Thanks, John. I'll probably go just a little further back than that very briefly. We had commission disclosure in the UK around about 1995, and this brought about a significant change for a lot of advisors, moving from being able to provide advice and product with absolutely no requirement to talk about their remuneration whatsoever. Fast forward to 2016 and advisors have to charge on a customer agreed remuneration basis, essentially agreeing a fee for whatever it is that they're doing. So we've moved from the client or the customer not understanding or having to be told at all what the remuneration is to it having to be agreed before anything can happen. And that's taken out the insurance or the investment company completely. The element of commission is still there for one or two products. And again, listening with interest to what Julie said, some of the terms are different, but I can see where the similarities are. Uh, For example, life assurance in the UK can still pay a commission to an advisor, but pretty much anything else can't. So whatever we call it, we might call it a pension instead of an IRA, we might call it a different sort of savings plan. Those things do not have commission attaching to them. When they are established, they are established on a customer-agreed remuneration basis. I'll call that a fee from now on. Whether it is an annual fee, a lump sum fee, an hourly rate fee for service, a monthly subscription, whatever it might be, those things are now in place. The majority of those last rules have come in in the last three or four years. So although I started in 1995, we had a lead-in time. You were talking about 2017, I think, earlier on. Uh, We knew it was coming for around about four years beforehand, and we've now had it for two and a half years where it is a fee basis for uh, advice. And you, Simon, are you determining the fee, or is it the manufacturer determining the fee? The manufacturer has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the fee. It is set by the advisor and the client. I would like to think the advisor every time in our particular business, but the client or the customer and the advisor are the people who set the fee. And is that put in writing in some way, shape, or form? Is there a standardized format for disclosure? There's no standardized format whatsoever. It just has to be provable. And uh, certainly in our business, we've put in place fee agreements. We've put in place client agreements that talk about the fees up front. Uh, But maybe what you should know is I've personally been charging fees since the 1st of June 2000. So I've got a 16-year track record of doing it. I've been much more comfortable 
with this process uh, and we've used fee agreements and schedules and the like ever since then. We felt that since 1995 with the Commission disclosure, knowing up front what the cost was going to be and explaining why uh, there's a cost and, and what people get for it is, is important. I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, perhaps mm-hmm. later on. It's essential, but the regulators don't insist that there is a fixed format. And Susan, so moving to Australia, what regulation has come into existence uh, within your country? Years. It's quite interesting because in many ways the same, in some ways a little bit different. The first line of regulation that probably really impacted Australia was on what we call employer super, which I think is your employee benefits where if previously we set up an employer super plan, we would have a trail commission on the funds under management within that plan and we would have insurance commission on the group life and the government came forward and said they just felt that was wrong. So basically going forward, after certain dates, that that would just stop. So a lot of people exited that market because that part of it got grandfathered but they also said to the superannuation companies as well, we're going to regulate you. We want you all to be very standardised. You all have to have a product that is the same product. And in 2017, roll everything over into those products so at that time the group life that is there on anything will just disappear. But they they can offer their own individual product, but they have to have inside it this what we call My Super, which is standard across the whole market. So is it vanilla? So yep. the products become, I mean... But that's inside. So they could have 32 investment options in an employee fund, but one of them has to be this my super that everybody has that's the same. And is there only one regulatory body? So it's ASIC in Australia that are bringing down the regulation. So that was the first one. So we're about to have the finalisation of that in 2017, but the impact initially has been felt and the advisors that have exited the market, all of that has been felt. Then the next one we had was the moving over to no commissions for any investments, which has now been enforced. So we run under a fee-for-service model where we basically, same thing, agree with the client. This is what I'm going to charge you. This is what it's for. So maybe when I set up the policy or the account, we're going to charge you, say, $2,000 or whatever it is. And then ongoing, do we charge you an ongoing fee? Because if we don't, we're not going to be there servicing you. Or, and we come to an arrangement... So we can either have them pay us or we can actually pull the money back out of the investment, but it is a fee-for-service no matter which way we do it. And again, nothing coming back from the manufacturer, we're determining that. Is the manufacturer then not regulating, but are they monitoring at all? Are they no, because they're really not in the equation because the documentation is between us and the consumer. It's only how we actually receive the payment So whether they're paying it by credit card or whether we're taking it out of their superannuation fund or their investment fund. So the only thing the manufacturer would do is actually service that transaction. And is there, like in the United States, there's errors and omissions insurance or protection that we purchase as advisors? Is there some such? Well, we have professional indemnity insurance and you would suggest that if you've got a practice you would have management liability insurance and public liability insurance and D&O is all included in, in that. But then the next line of regulation we've got, which we're currently in the midst of as now and we're actually changing or we're in election mode, a bit shorter than your election mode, but um, election mode nonetheless. Um, and that was about to be passed through Parliament but ceased when the election was called. But the next lot of reform is on life insurance. 
So that's the one where they are actually affecting the level of commissions that we receive out of life insurance. And the concern is after the election whether not only will they look at the level but then have a conversation because one side of Parliament would prefer there was no commission in life insurance and the other side disagree. So that's probably... It's more uncertainty that's facing Australia at the moment on that side. So you've witnessed regulation that just continues to encroach upon our industry. Yep. And Simon, do you have felt the same? Yes, I honestly may make myself unpopular here. I don't think all regulation encroaches on what I like to call the profession. I think some of it is is long overdue and needed. There is more of it, and the degree to which the regulator makes good choices, I think, is quite often dependent upon the economic circumstances. We've noticed that the regulators have taken a lot more interest and perhaps have got a bit more heavy-handed since the global credit crisis, for example, whereas some of the regulation that we've seen over the years, I think, has been long overdue. So Mm. I think there's a balance. And Julie, so do you see, I'd like to just discuss a little bit of the impact that that you see from your perspective as the impact on the advisor. So these regulations are coming, right? And uh, what do you see the impact on, on the industry, right? So we have the manufacturers, but then we also have the advisors. Well, the impact is tremendous, I think, on this new uh, regulation brought out by the Department of Labor. I start with the companies. I mean, they're going to have a significant amount of expense to sort of change their processes, um, change their applications, change the way that they uh, currently receive data or information from the advisor to make sure that the sale is appropriate and is in the best interest of the client. So there's going to be a lot more pressure, I believe, on the companies uh, to make sure that it's appropriate. It also puts the company in the equation as far as signing any exemptions. The best interest contract is probably one of the best or the the most used uh, exemption that will be utilized by most advisors that are going to still charge a commission. That best interest contract, the parties uh, to sign that contract are the client, the consumer, and the manufacturer or the vendor in in whatever case that is. If it's the independent broker-dealer, if it's the insurance company, they are a signer on that account. The actual advisor with the new revised rule is not signing that that document. Although they are being held responsible to make sure that the sale is appropriate and is in the best interest of the client. So the company is put into the equation in a much more robust way, I believe, and yet they have a lot of pressure and expense, I think, to get this rule implemented. The impact on the advisor, I would say many advisors have been operating in a very straight commission-based world for a long time in the United States. And it's going to force people to sort of change their perspective, I believe, start operating more in that fee-based world. We have a lot of agents, advisors that are strictly insurance licensed only. Do they have to now start considering getting their securities license? I think they can still operate with this rule without getting their securities license. But they are going to have to be under that best interest exemption in order to charge a commission. So within the regulation, it's defined as BIC, the BIC contract, right? And that's what you're referring to is this best interest contract that the advisor needs to present to the consumer if they want to work under an exemption. Correct. And that exemption would allow you to charge a commission instead of a fee. And And so do you see that the carriers are going to 
maybe remanufacture product to fit this particular rule. And I just want to back up one quick second. When we use the term company, we're speaking of could be independent broker-dealers or broker-dealers that are affiliated with an insurance company. So do you see that the product menu is going to change? I think they're already looking at products that are going to change. And I think it's not necessarily products that are going to fit within the best interest contract. I think they're going to look for products that are outside of the best interest contract. For example, variable annuity sales have always been typically a commission-based product here in the United States. And I would anticipate that there will be variable annuity companies coming out with fee-based annuity products so that you don't have to use the best interest contract. So I think manufacturers are already thinking about ways that they can they can not circumvent, but just work within this new regulatory environment that we're in. Speaking of carriers, again, whether it be broker-dealers and or insurance companies, I mean, is distribution going to change or are carriers going to have to make a decision how they're going to distribute their products? Are they going to be manufacturers only? Or are they going to be manufacturers and distributors? I mean, how is, just from your perspective, how is the game going to change? Well, I, I do think companies are going to look at ways to distribute our products. And if they can do it without agents or advisors, I think they may consider that. That came up many times when the Department of Labor was being debated, both in front of the Department of Labor, within Congress. There was discussion about what we call here in the United States as robo-advisors. I think there's a fear here in the United States that robo-advisors could become sort of the new way of the future. I personally uh, cringe when I think of that because I know the kind of relationship I have with my clients. We build long-term, long-lasting relationships. We understand many aspects of their life and not just the transaction. It's very much a relation relationship business. So I think there's some fear that the distribution may change. I would hope that it doesn't. So I think there's lots of uncertainty yet. The rule's fairly new. The revised rule's only been out a few weeks. I think as it's sort of rolled out and and companies start to interpret how it needs to be implemented, we're going to really find out the, the true impact of this rule. And Simon, it's from a distribution standpoint, have you seen change over the last 10, 15 years? There's been a big change going back uh, to 1995 and since, and the distribution has certainly reduced as much as anything because of the significant fall in the number of individual advisors that are out there. I don't remember the precise numbers, but we're probably at about 25% of where we were. And as advisors, as practitioners within their own firms or advisors that are connected or employed by firms, banks, or or other models? Well, it's both, but in particular, the, the days of the person who would turn up on your doorstep, knock on your door, collect your money from you, make sure that you could be buried in style, make sure that there would be some money for your widow or widower uh, in the event of your untimely death, make sure you've got some sort of fund in retirement. It really does not exist today. Uh, I'm interested in the point about robo-advice. Relationship versus robo-advice is is no contest as far as I'm concerned. It's absolutely no contest. You can't even measure it in the UK at the moment and there are companies spending tens of millions of pounds trying to make it work and it is simply not working. That's not to say it might not work. At the moment, it, it, it simply doesn't. Why doesn't it impact your business? Our business is, is primarily dealing with wealthier people. When I first started charging fees 16 years ago, people would say to me, but my clients won't charge, won't pay fees. 
how are you charging fees? So my clients will not pay fees. And I said, I know why they won't pay, because you haven't asked them. But that's at the level that we're talking about. The level that we're talking about is wealthy people. When you go down the scale, it's an affordability thing. And how £100 a month, $100 a month, whatever the currency around the table, uh, it's, it's a modest sum and there's no remuneration attached to it. When you don't have commission, there is no remuneration attached to it. How do you charge a fixed fee when someone is trying to save £100 a month? I wouldn't do that for somebody. I wouldn't expect them to say yes. Mm. And so I can't put that in place for, for those sort of people. I think the second element is it is important, and, and Sue referred to it earlier on, that we explain what people are getting for their money. Well, when you've got more modest savings and you're looking at maybe a more modest life assurance policy, there is something at the end of it, but it's more difficult for somebody to understand what they're getting. It's more difficult to see the value in it. And so that's what I'm hearing is relationship and value. Yes. Cost is, is not the issue. Value is the issue. And Susan, in, in Australia, so you know, have you seen distribution change from where you sit? Yes, yeah, fairly continually, actually. And I think what you're referring to is robo-advice, which we talk about in Australia as well, but generally in the market, we would call it direct insurance. And direct insurance is a very big player in Australia, very successful player. However, in saying that, I actually think there is a space for it. The same as I believe that the bank distribution model, although not a great model, you're better off to have someone distributing insurance than not having it distributed. The worst impact is if there's if it's just not being written. And I think there's occasions where you have somebody who goes, they're attracted to the direct model because they're like a shopper. And that's not the client that we would want for the long term anyway. So I think that suits that client. But in our mindset now, in our practice, we really look at things and think it's either an advice transaction or a non-advice transaction. So you could be my advice client, but in this particular instance, you don't need my advice, you just want a million dollars of insurance. Well then on our website, we've got a tab that you can click and go in and do it directly. But at time of claim, I can still work for you and I get a lesser earning off that. So we've sort of looked at it that way. As far as the bigger distribution picture goes, A lot of the um, push behind the changes in legislation have been in Australia by our FSC, Financial Services Council, which is comprised of all of the insurance companies and the broker-dealer group representation. A lot of the insurance companies are owned by the banks. So the bank owns the insurance company, which owns the broker-dealer groups. So it's vertically aligned, which the government doesn't like the vertical aligned model. So... As the insurance companies were pushing for these changes, then the government have come back and said, well, we don't really like the vertically aligned model. When they extended our best interest duty, which the fiduciary duty was already in our Corpse Act anyway, so I'm not really sure. Now it's in two acts rather than one. But when they expanded the best interest duty, it basically put the broker-dealer groups or anyone who's distributing into the position of going, you can't expect the advisor that works under that licence to be just offering those products they have to be able to offer other products and in fact every time you write a product you have to prove why you actually went to that company and didn't offer all of the others so you have to research every company every time you do everything. I think that's changing quite quickly in the UK we we went from a polarised world not very long ago of a tied agent a company representative or an independent advisor and we still have those two things. They've got different names now, unfortunately. The, the, the regulators are not great with their words, so they've picked some odd titles. But for, for the listener, the principle is the same. 
However, there's been quite a move even in recent months of significant independent firms moving to what is now called restricted advice. And part of the reason is the cost of the regulation of being independent. They can still provide fantastic advice to their client. There doesn't seem a lot of doubt in the around the profession that, that you can be a good advisor whichever you are. Nevertheless, that independent tag, it's not gone by any means, but I do see a pressure on it. The other thing I was going to quickly mention, I don't know the numbers in, in Australia or the, or the US or Canada or elsewhere, but the savings gap is something that we hear a lot about in the UK, and the, the gap is widening. And if I sit back and look at that, I think, well, why is that gap widening? And the, the answer to me is that uh, the, the government... Uh, are, uh, and the regulators are creating that gap. They're making that gap widen because they're making it more difficult for the people, the very people I think most of us are talking about, who are not in a position to pay for and get great advice, that they're not saving enough. Well, if the government are worried about it, it's almost as if they're doing the reverse of what they might be doing. And I'm certainly not anti some of the regulation, as I said earlier on, but I don't think they're helping the savings gap with some of the decisions that are being made. Excellent. And so, Julie, take that a little bit further as it applies to the United States. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Simon. I think uh, my biggest fear is that this will uh, provide this huge gap of individuals who just can't get advice. And I think what we need the most is some financial literacy training, education in some way. Uh, There was a time when that was taught in, in high school or college, and it's just not being done anymore. So I'm finding individuals that I would have expected would have a basic understanding of of really how to manage their own finances, and they really don't have that understanding. And so if we're unable to get compensated in any way because maybe they don't have you know, a significant sum of money to invest, how are we supposed to justify the time it takes to, to spend and, and do, you know, bring them up to speed on their, on their personal finances? So perhaps that's a way that the government could get involved and, and focus on training or financial literacy education. However, I don't see them doing that. I think, well, maybe that's their intention. I, I, I don't know. If, if they get rid of advisors from being compensated to do it, Perhaps that brings them an opportunity to be looked to for financial uh, literacy education. So I think this gap is widening, and I see it going to widen in the U.S., and I'm very interested to hear that in the U.K., your experience in that, I would assume in Australia, you are as well. So I think there is a real concern for that to be a problem. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Episode 2 in our DOL podcast series. If you'd like to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes at MDRT Podcast. See you next time.